My name's uh, Alex. Uh, I'm one of Elsie's godparents, which is probably my most important label for the morning. I'm also on staff here at St John's. Uh, a really important part of today's service, as we've already done, we are celebrating Elspeth Randall Creening's baptism and welcoming her into the St John's church family. This baptism is when all of us, parents, godparents, church and family, promise to rejoice with Elsie, to suffer with her, to pray for her and guide and walk alongside her on the path with Jesus. Uh, as well as being one of Elsie's parents, I'm blessed to have two other goddaughters as well. And I remember vividly, the first time I met her and me, my goddaughters. I visited her in the whole to me before. I think she's the youngest baby I've seen. Uh, she was a good size, bigger than Elsie was when she was born, but you could tell she was brand new. She was a bit squashed, uh, with a wrinkled red face and a shock of dark hair. Now, I know where babies come from. I have a veterinary science degree. I know a bit about how embryology works. But it is a mystery to me how this little person had come into the world. A tiny girl who had started from nothing, from a collection of cells in someone else's body. I held baby Naomi in the hospital room and the mystery of it all was beyond my understanding. I was awestruck. There are other situations in our world that can strike us with awe, where the only appropriate response we can have is to wonder at the mystery. Gazing at a Matisse painting, seeing a wild animal in their natural habitat, experiencing a moment where deep understanding and trust are shared, not to mention holding a newborn baby. And arguably one of the greatest mysteries is our theme for this week in our Advent series, the incarnation. The mind-boggling mystery of God becoming human, coming to live among us as we read in those beautiful words in Zechariah chapter two. And this in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Philippians, Philippians 2 tells us, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. The creator and sustainer of the universe made himself nothing by deciding to become part of his creation. He was born a Jewish male around 5 BC in an occupied country in poverty to Mary and Joseph. So what about the incarnation is a gift? Well, unexpectedly, Jesus being born as a baby in Bethlehem was the pinnacle of God's salvation plan. Uh, there's a quote from a TV show that's been doing the rounds on some social media platforms like TikTok, and you don't have to understand TikTok or even know what it is to understand this illustration. Uh, but I saw a great version the other day. Uh, it's this video, and that's a photo from it, uh, of a cat stuck inside a bag that it had climbed into with the quote, well, if it isn't the consequences of my own actions. The cat was fine, it got out at the end of the video, don't worry. Uh, but that's us, humanity. Instead of living in God's world the way he's made us to, trusting and relying on him, 
we decide to trust ourselves. And so we've ended up like this poor cat, living with the consequences of our own actions. But instead of leaving us with those consequences, God wades into the world with us. He experiences the consequences of our rebellion against him and saves us from them. That's how Jesus' birth is the pinnacle of God's great salvation plan. We're going to delve into this a bit more and we'll explain and we'll sorry, explore the incarnation as a gift in three ways. We'll see how the incarnation is a gift to women. The incarnation is a gift to the wounded and the incarnation is a gift to the world. And as we do this, I pray that we'll be struck again or for the first time by the glorious mystery of God becoming human. Well, first of all, the incarnation as a gift to women. Of course, the incarnation is a gift to all people, women and men. Jesus became human, lived a perfect life that drew in the skeptic and believer alike and was tortured to death so that he could take the punishment for sin for both women and men. God doesn't show favoritism. Women and men are saved equally in Christ. But sometimes in the church and even in our culture outside of the church, which is generally quite egalitarian by historical and world standards, it can sometimes feel like being a woman is not the preferred state of being. Yes, perhaps the incarnation is a gift to all people, but surely it's more of a gift to men. After all, Jesus took on male flesh, not female. Doesn't this say something about the universal preeminence of men or about the hopeless, outdated misogyny of Christianity? How can we say that the incarnation is a gift to women? Well, of course, part of becoming human is that God had to restrict himself. He had to be male or female. He couldn't shift between both and still be authentically human. He had to be a particular height and weight. His hair was a particular colour. He spoke Aramaic, not English or Hindi or Bunjalang. Jesus had to be restricted in order to be human. It's also helpful to understand that the maleness of Jesus is important in the salvation story and the context in which he lived. When God in Jesus entered creation, he came into an existing patriarchal system and in some ways conformed to that system. Jesus is a representative of the nation of Israel and of the whole of humanity. And being male would have been expected at that time for both these roles. We can't escape the fact that Jesus is a man. That's one of the restrictions he chose to take on when the eternal God became human. But Jesus also subverts the patriarchal system consistently and repeatedly throughout the Gospels. In his conversations with women, in his compassion for them, in his close friendships with women. The role of women in the incarnation story is also incredibly significant, especially Mary, his mother. In the story of Jesus' conception, which we read from Luke chapter 1, we see Mary's courageous faithfulness when she's told by an angel that she'll give birth to the Son of God. After all, Jesus could probably have chosen to arrive fully formed 
as the God-man. But instead, we have the glorious truth that God in Christ was conceived and grew in a woman's womb. And knowing what we do about how babies are made, when God took on flesh, he chose to take this flesh from a woman. Jesus is made of a woman, not just in her. She was his mother in every way, physically pregnant with the Son of God, who was also born of the Spirit. That means Jesus also chose to go through the process of birth with all the mess of bodily functions and emotions. He was nurtured by milk from Mary's breasts and learned from her as he grew. Not all women will go through pregnancy and childbirth, myself perhaps included, but I believe there's still an intimate, real connection there for all women. In the same way that Mary is willingly involved in God's salvation story, our whole selves can be used by God to accomplish his glorious plans. God renews and equips little girls and women like Elspeth to change the world for his glory. Women aren't less worthy or less capable in God's eyes and his purposes. God becoming man doesn't make women inferior but elevates our humanity, our uniqueness as those made in God's image and used by God to bring healing and salvation. The incarnation truly is a gift to women. Well, secondly, the incarnation is a gift to the wounded. As we look at the world around us and at our own experiences of life, we might well ask what God's answer is to the suffering and pain. What is God's answer to Afghan refugees who've had their country and homes destroyed and now have no safe place to live? What is his answer to the Indigenous people of Australia who still struggle with generational trauma, poor health outcomes and systemic injustice with often little hope in sight? If God is loving and all-powerful, what is his answer to the lonely, the unemployed, the traumatised, to those who are wounded by the horrors of life? Yes, there are intellectual justifications that can help us to understand why suffering happens. But most compellingly, I think, we can be comforted by our Lord Jesus, the one who in his humanity stands with those who are wounded. Our God isn't the kind of God who stands at a distance and watches our suffering. He becomes part of his creation and suffers with us. As we spend time in the Gospels, we're reminded again and again of Jesus' experience of, his, of suffering and his love for those who suffer. In Luke chapter 5, a man comes to Jesus covered with leprosy, a disfiguring skin disease which made you a social outcast. He begs Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And so Jesus reaches out his hand and touches the man a man who was used to being avoided, being untouchable. And he tells the man, I am willing. In Luke chapter 7, when confronted by a funeral procession for the only son of a widow, Jesus sees the woman and his heart goes out to her. He says to her, don't cry. And with tender compassion for this bereft woman, Jesus raises her son back to life. 
In John chapter 11, Jesus goes to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, who has just died, and he sees Lazarus's sister and his own dear friend Mary. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. In the face of death, God incarnate felt the very human emotions of sorrow and despair. But in the words of American theologian Kevin Van Hooser, uh, Jesus isn't just the fellow sufferer who understands. He's also the sovereign sufferer who withstands. Uh, when we injure ourselves or get sick, it's one thing to have friends and family who feel our pain and distress and support us because they know what it feels like. But it's another thing entirely to see a doctor. Not only can a good doctor empathise with our suffering, they can usually do something to help. They can help our bodies to withstand the illness or injury. In a similar way, Jesus is more than just a fellow sufferer who understands. He's the sovereign sufferer who withstands. He can do something about it. Jesus' suffering and death brought about the defeat of suffering and death. Uh, let me read from Hebrews chapter 2. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. In the incarnation, Christ in his humanity identifies with those who are wounded. And as a perfect representative of humanity, he also takes the penalty of sin that we deserve. His actions in dying on a cross bring freedom and healing to all of us enslaved by sin and death, all of us who are wounded. Uh, this might be something that God is speaking to your heart for the first time today. Jesus suffered and died in your place, and his wounds can bring you healing. And he invites you to trust and follow him. And if you've never decided to do that before, perhaps today is the day. But even for those of us who have heard this a hundred times before and do follow Jesus as Lord, this is still an invitation to us. Christ invites us to bring our woundedness to him. He listens, he understands, and through his death and his spirit in us, he's at work to bring healing. The incarnation is a gift to all of us who are wounded, a gift that Jesus longs for each of us to accept. Finally, the incarnation is a gift to the world. Uh, perhaps you've heard the claim or even thought yourself that following Jesus is just about the salvation of your soul uh, with no real attachment to this world. That one day when we die, we'll leave behind the earthly shell of our bodies and our souls, the part of us that really matters, will ascend to be with Christ in a spiritual heaven. Uh, but the incarnation actually tells us the opposite. 
God became flesh. And in doing this, God affirms that the physical matters. We're not just souls trapped in bodies, we're embodied beings. When we feel the cold shock of seawater on our skin, when we hear those we love laughing and chatting, when we taste a delicious meal, these are ways we can enjoy God's good gifts as embodied people and give thanks to him for his abundant generosity. I was having lunch with some friends last week and one friend brought a box of mangoes to share. And as the luscious tropical aroma of those mangoes filled the room and we all started to devour them, someone exclaimed that God is so good for creating mangoes. He could have just created apples. I mean, they're, they're great, I suppose. But in his joyful generosity, he made hundreds of different types of fruit. He gives us mangoes. God created the physical world as well as the spiritual. And in Christ becoming human, the physical world, including our humanity, is affirmed and celebrated. And it's not only in this life that our bodies matter. Uh, Philippians 3 uh, says to us, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Christ now reigns with the Father in heaven in his human body, perfected and glorified. And when he returns, he'll transform our bodies so that they're fit for an eternity with him. Our bodies matter now and forever. And this hope that we have for the future isn't just an individual hope, but is bound up with the destiny of the world. Uh, Romans 8 tells us, uh, the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. When Christ returns, it won't just be the church worshiping, all creation will be brought into the freedom and glory of God's children. That's why global warming, habitat destruction and pollution are relevant issues for the church to speak into. God cares deeply about the physical world and his rescue plan includes the redemption of all creation. That's why the incarnation is a gift for the world. Well, the fact that God became human is one of the most mind-bending and amazing parts of the Christian faith. Like I wondered at the mystery of holding my goddaughter Naomi for the first time as a tiny baby. The incarnation is a mystery that we wonder at. The all-powerful eternal Lord of all creation made himself nothing by taking on humanity. This is the mystery and the glory of the Incarnation. And this is why the Incarnation is a gift. A gift to women, because Jesus' choice to be born from a woman affirms the special place of all women in God's purposes. A gift to the wounded, because Jesus in his humanity stands with those who suffer and brings us healing and hope through his own suffering and death. 
and a gift to the world as Jesus' humanity affirms the fullness of our humanity and the goodness of the physical world. This is a gift that we wonder at and rejoice in. We're going to sing together now in praise uh, to our great Lord Jesus as we sing uh, Paddy's favourite song, Jesus Loves Me. Please stand as the band leads us.